recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December 15th, 2012. We had been in the middle of a series against the Paul Bashers, and I guess after four segments we needed a break. I have been called a, um, a neo-Nazi in certain identity Christian circles, and I think that's pretty damned pitiful since the um, the Mein Kampf Project website, the aim, the, the primary aim of that website is simply to present an alternative view of the history of the 20th century, one that hasn't been written by the Jew. Any Christian identist who despises my position on Adolf Hitler, on National Socialist Germany, which was a Christian state, ruled and led, I should say, by a good Christian man. Any Christian identist who despises me for holding those positions simply hasn't opened his eyes completely to the truth, simply hasn't cleansed his mind of the Jewish propaganda, which he's been fed all his life, and stands with only maybe perhaps one foot or a few toes in the truth. The truth of the, the events of the, mid of the mid-20th century is that America and Britain, along with France and, and the other so-called allied powers, basically played the whore for the Jews to destroy Christian Germany and Christian Europe once and for all, which is the Jewish plot, and we were their whores. That's the truth. And that's a hard pill to swallow. But if you haven't swallowed that pill and accepted that truth, you're not there. You're not in the truth. You're not in the light. Our German brethren in Europe were the last Christian nation to stand up against world Jewry and Jew Jewish supremacy, and we destroyed them. He who hates his brother is not in the light, according to the Apostle John. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is a liar, according to the Apostle John. Tonight I have sword brethren with me, and we're going to have a discussion. I would like to term it um, Christian, Christianity is National Socialism, but that's not quite true. National Socialism is a political form with solely Christian principles. That would be true. Christianity, however, is nationalism, and Christianity is socialism. However, the average mind, the average Western mind, following the lead of the Jew and the Jewish deception, confuses socialism with Marxism. And tonight we will try to clear a little of that up. Hello, Sword Brethren. Welcome to the Hello, Bill. How are you? Um, thank you for having me on tonight. And I just wanted to get one thought out real quick. You know, I'm, I'm fairly tolerant politically. I have friends all over the spectrum. We've had, you know, capitalists on my programs, and you, you've been there for some debates and discussions. And I don't demand people adhere to one political philosophy or another, but someone, you know, I've been thinking, someone who would call himself an identity leader and then condemn the MK site, I would question their faith, and I would question their discernment. 
Well, well, absolutely, but they're, 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 they are um, they're striving to win over and placate certain segments of the British Israel and, and, and the Christian identity crowd that leans towards British Israel. And, um, of, of course, the British Israel crowd is all about um, the, the glory of the former empire and, and the evil Nazis, right? Right. So they're not really interested in any sort of spiritual knowledge. They don't want to enhance their theological viewpoint. They don't want to come to a greater understanding of the truth. They just want to have someone pat them on the back and tell them how great the British Empire was. Well, well, right. They're Anglophiles, or, or I should say Anglo-Amerophiles, and, and, and they've swallowed all the Jewish propaganda and believe it. That, that's the bottom line. That, that They found the identity message... And 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 they found it with, you know, the early British identity writers of the late 19th century, and and they haven't grown in it, and they haven't um, that they haven't come to the fullness of the truth. That's it's it's I don't know how to quantify it exactly. That they got to the first level and and they stopped growing there. They were happy with with understanding their own identity as. Um, children of Israel, and, and rather than continue studying the Bibles and finding that Christians should reject the Jew, they were more than happy to get in bed with the Jew as fellow compatriots and, and, and um, allow the Jewish deception to continue. Right, so while we might want to gather and sing old-time religion or a song along those lines, they're content to sing God Save the King, but why would God save a king who's a whore for the Jew? Well, well absolutely. That It's basically... Satan worship. Absolutely. And even the, the capitalists we've had on from time to time, they recognize the work you're doing on the MK site and that it's a useful, interesting site. They just don't believe everything that's on there because they're not national socialists, but they still recognize that the site has value and it's doing, a good, it's doing good work. Well, well, right. We have to... Um... Yeah, you know, there's a, there's a lot of World War II revisionists, and, and a lot of them are good men. However, they've accepted the Jewish paradigms of universalism and race mixing. And um, I'm talking about Germar Rudolph, and I'm talking about Bradley Smith and, and people like that. They've done a lot of excellent work in the area of the Second World War, but they wear blinders when it comes to everything else. You know, Germán Rudolph, he's a great chemist, but he's no historian and no Bible scholar. But yet he, he feels that he has to make um, commentary uh, on social issues and the issues of race. And, and they're, always, they're always within the Jewish paradigm. It, it's terrible. It, it's repulsive. And, and there's a lot of Bible students who would revise the Bible and, and who would um, understand, get, you know, write revisionist commentary about the Bible, and I mean Christian identity people, and, and, and they would deny that the Jews are who they claim they are, and that denial is correct, and they would um, propound Israel identity in, in, in the European peoples of today, and that's correct. Well, well you have these Bible scholars that, that have blinders on and only see... Christian identity in the Bible, and, and you have these Holocaust revisionists, and, and their specialty is World War II, and that's fine, but they only see revisionism in, in, in that area and don't really understand 
Neither group understands that when you come to the truth, you have to reassess your beliefs about everything from start to finish. You really do. You have to wipe the slate clean and, and, and consider and study history all over again. Or at the very least, they have to acknowledge that they don't have all the pieces to the puzzle. Maybe there's 500 pieces to complete the puzzle, and they have 50 or 60, so they have to rely on their brothers who have another 50 or 60, and we have to collaborate and work together, and we all bring something to the table, and we have to accept, okay, I don't know medieval history, but this man here is learned in that, or you're learned in the Greek, or, you know, Clifton studied, you know, this aspect of the, his unpardonable sin paper, and everyone brings something to the table, and, you know, we come to a greater understanding of the truth as a group. But I guess there are some people out there that think they've got the whole puzzle figured out when they only have 20 or 30 pieces of the puzzle. Well, well, right. And, and, and they, the, the World War II revisionists, they, they don't study the Bible. They take it for granted that the Jews are, are telling the truth about the Bible while, while they're telling these huge lies about the Second World War. And, 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 and then there's the, the British-Israel types that don't want to be moved from their comfort zone relating to modern history and, and, and want to please the world while claiming to be Israel and, and that, that they haven't accepted full responsibility for examining the entire truth. They really haven't stepped outside of the mainstream in that regard. Sure, they have a, a theological doctrine that puts them at odds with most of mainstream Christianity, but there's no instant knee-jerk reaction of opposition. They're not going to be condemned as racist if they appear at a theological convention. They'd be considered odd or eccentric, but they're still more or less respectable, and they don't want to lose that respectability. There are also people in Christian identity that condemn me for, for, um, for having sympathies for national socialists. I'm, I'm not a national socialist. It, it's not fair to call me a national socialist simply because my MindConf Project website seeks to um, present a correct version of the truth relating to the events of the 20th century. That's not fair to call me a national socialist. That, that would be like um, if a historian writes a book about Buddhism, to call him a Buddhist when all he did was write a book about Buddhism, right? I mean, that's not right. Well, well I do have national so socialist sympathies because I understand that national socialism was a Christian political philosophy. Because I've read the material that's led me to believe that. We will present some of that material tonight. Well, absolutely. And isn't that that's textbook Jewry, isn't it? If the truth is racist and you communicate truth, they call you a racist and condemn you. But all you're doing is speaking the truth. Right. Now, now, I understand. I'm not claiming that National Socialism is a Christian political philosophy. I can prove that it is from original documents of the National Socialists themselves, which the mainstream categorizes as propaganda. However, it was actually what National Socialist Germany had put into political practice, whatever that noise was. The... the um, The, the Christian outlook should be both nationalist and socialist. However, the word socialist is rejected because in, in today's vernacular, the Jews have used the term socialism. They have abused it. 
They haven't used it. They have abused it, I'm sorry. The term oh. socialism to represent Marxism, and Marxism is not socialism. Marxism, in truth, is Talmudism. Well, Bill, can I real quick here just to get the ball rolling, start off with what the Jews mean when they say socialism. I'd like to read just two or three of the items from the ten planks of the Communist Manifesto real quick, if I may, so we can get an idea of what the Jew means when he says socialism. Sure. Number one, abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Number two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Number three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. Number five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Number nine, combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equitable, equable distribution of the population over the country. Number seven, extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state, the bringing into cultivation of wastelands and the improvement of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. Now, for the most part, aside from, you know, cultivating previously uncultivated land, none of this happened in National Socialist Germany. There was no abolition of the rights of inheritance. There was no abolition of property and land or the rights of private property owners. So when the Jew talks about socialism, what he means is he, the state is going to own everything and he's going to manage the state. So in essence, he owns everything. Well, well right. That's because the Jew has absconded the word socialism and uses it as a euphemism for Marxist communism or, or for Marxism. That the socialism is actually a, um, a a political philosophy attached to nationalism by French political philosophers long before Marx, and and exist national socialism existed long before Hitler, and socialism does not work without nationalism, and and we'll see some of that tonight. Well, a lot of people they let the Jews define their words for them. And if you use the words that the Jews have defined, you're going to lose. You can't let them define your language. Right. First, I would like to present an editorial I wrote for the Saxon Messenger a few months ago. It's, in, it's entitled, Christianity is Nationalism. Christianity is nationalism, and in a Christian's public intercourse, it must be nationalist first. You can't expect all of your brethren to just know the truth and only accept those of your brethren who do know the truth. Christianity should be nationalist first. Christ said, love thy brother. He didn't say, love thy brother, as long as he's a Christian and knows the truth. We have to love our brother first and then attempt to teach him the truth or to make him see the truth. And, and we do that through our actions and, and through our, our love for our kindred. And well, while I'm getting ahead of myself in my own paper, identity Christians should therefore put their kindred and their race above all things in their exterior actions and their relationships, while they keep their God above all things in their hearts. Many Christians attach far too much import to public expressions of faith as an evidence of belonging. There is a difference between glorifying God and a need to convince everyone how much you love Jesus, which is often really only a display of self-righteousness. Too many Christians, even identity Christians, stress agreement in Christ 
over a love for their brethren and consider only those who agree in Christ as their brethren. How are they different from mainstream Protestants in that respect? They fail to realize that today the enemies of Christ have deceived the entire world, as the scripture also tells us. The Jews have insisted on displaying a picture of a Christ who loves everybody, a Christ who hates no one, in direct contradiction to the scripture, and a Christ who accepts all sinners and all sin without a thought of repentance and conformity on behalf of the individual. Therefore, since none of that resonates with the true Aryan spirit, many good white kinsmen who do not know what Christ really is do not know why Christ matters or do not even know which Jesus to believe. So they reject everything Jesus. That's not their fault. It, it's just that they haven't come across the truth. Identity Christians, above all, should understand that situation because most identity Christians were in that very same situation themselves at one time or another. Just because you got called to the light doesn't mean that you should disdain your brother who hasn't yet been called to the light. Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then in John 13, 34, he said, I give to you a new commandment, that you should love one another just as I have loved you, that you also should love one another. Now, it may be argued that Christ was talking only about his followers. However, that is not the case. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, Christ told those followers to love your enemies and pray for those persecuting you, that you may be sons of your Father who is in the heavens, because his Son rises upon evil and good and reigns upon righteous and unrighteous. For if you should love those loving you, what reward do you have? Do not also the tax collectors do the same. And if you should greet your brethren only, what do you do that is extraordinary? Do not also the heathens do the same. Therefore you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Of course, Christ was only in the context of Matthew chapter 5. Christ was only speaking to those people for whom he had come. He was only speaking to, for, and about the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I have come but unto, meaning only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As Christians, we are to love our brethren who are our enemies, but we are never expected to love the enemies of Christ our God, ever. We're to hate his enemies, which is another matter entirely. As Christians, we are to love all of our racial kindred, those who are of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, whether or not they are still lost, since indeed they are all of the family of the faith, whether they are lost or not. After Christ told his apostles to love one another, he told Peter that Peter would deny him three times before the break of the following dawn. Peter did deny Christ three times. However, Christ certainly loved Peter no less. Today we see many good white people denying Christ for basically the same cause that Peter did. 
They have given in to the pressures of the world. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, You owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Indeed, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not lust. And any other commandment is summarized in this saying. Paul said that, not to dismiss the rest of the commandments. He said that because you don't need to know the commandments. If you love your brother, you're not going to break the commandments. And any other commandment is summarized in this saying, to wit, you shall love him near to you as yourself. Love for him near to you who does not practice evil. I know the King James is poorly translated here. Love for him near to you who does not practice evil. Therefore, fulfilling of the law is love. Now, him near to you, or the word, the, the literal translation of the word translated neighbor in the King James, if we want to understand that word, it doesn't mean somebody in geographical proximity. It means somebody in racial, ethnic proximity. If we go back to the Hebrew word, the root of the phrase, we find that one's neighbor is someone who was raised up and nourished with you. They are a fellow flock member. The word comes from a Hebrew root, which means to graze together like sheep. Note here that Paul does not mention the first great commandment, although he illustrates its importance in many other places, that we are to love Yahweh our God with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our mind. But the people to whom Christ spoke those words in Matthew chapter 22 had already claimed to know God. By contrast, in Romans chapter 13, Paul was talking about the Christian's relationship with those of his nation and those in offices of worldly government. With fellow citizens and political leaders who were not necessarily Christians, not being Christians, these people could not be expected to have knowledge of the one true God or to be conscious of that first great commandment. The Christian must also be conscious of what constitutes a nation. Since Christ came, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew fifteen twenty four, and since the children of Israel shall never cease from being a nation, the promise of Jeremiah chapter thirty one, verses thirty one through thirty six, and since those are the faith of Abraham, as Paul explains in Romans chapter four, those are the faith of Abraham are they who were of those nations of the promise which are sprung from the loins of Abraham, and that's what Paul explains in Romans chapter 4. Christianity is indeed a faith which is first and foremost a nationalist faith. And if Paul had told the Corinthians that their fathers were baptized in the cloud and the sea with Moses, and that they were of those nations of Israel according to the flesh, and that therefore... They should not commit fornication as their fathers had done, and in one day 23,000 of them had slain, been slain. Then Christianity is still a nationalist faith. And Paul told the Corinthians all of those things in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Christianity is still a nationalist faith, 
and it's a nationalist faith in the true racial sense of the word. The event which Paul referred to as fornication, which is a sin for Christians, we see that from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see it from Jude verse 7. The event is the race-mixing event between the ancient Israelites and the Moabites described in Numbers chapter 25, for which the children of Israel were punished. If Paul told the Corinthians not to do that because it was fornication, then, using that as an example, he demonstrates that Christianity is a nationalist faith. The Corinthians, being Dorian Greeks, indeed had their origins in the 12 tribes of ancient Israel. If the Apostle Jude tells us in his one short epistle that fornication is the pursuit of different flesh, I know the King James has it translated, strange flesh. The word is heteros, and it means different. If Jude portrays that as evil, then Christianity remains a nationalist faith indeed. The word nation comes from the Latin word natio, N-A-T-I-O, which means a tribe, nation, people, race, stock, or breed. According to the Bantam New College Latin and English Dictionary. This is similar in meaning <clears throat> to the Greek word ethnos, from which we get the English word ethnicity. The word ethnos was in scripture, sometimes translated nation, and usually translated Gentile. But what does the word Gentile really mean? The word Gentile is not an English word. And its use in Scripture is, is deceptive because it is misunderstood. It came from Latin and was adopted in the English Bible for religious purposes. According to the Junior Classic Latin Dictionary published by Wilcox and Follett Company in 1945, gentilis means of the same clan or race it being derived from the word gens, which primarily means to describe a clan, but also a stock, family, tribe, or nation. Properly, a nation can only consist of those of a single race of people, whether there are other races in the same geographical area or not. Those of other races cannot even properly be a part of one's nation. The identity Christian must learn to put his race first because we understand that all Israel shall indeed be saved. The identity Christian must learn to accept the brethren who were caught up in the heresies of the world, because we ourselves were once caught up in the heresies of the world. All of us were. Only a very small portion of us were actually raised in identity Christianity. Therefore, if we believe that we have the light, then we must be a shining example to our racial kindred, that we may draw them to the place where we desire to be, into the body of Christ. Picture our world as a circle, around a hill elevated in the center. The wider circle encompasses our race. Inside of that is a circle which encompasses those of our race who keep a godly morality. Whether or not they are professing Christians, they are our brethren. 
Many of our race are good Christians in action, if not in profession. Because whether they realize it or not, the laws of our God are written into their hearts. Inside the circle and nearing the top of the hill is the body of Christ. That is where we should all hope to be. They who imagine themselves to be in the center of that circle, at the top of the hill, nearest to our God, should seek to draw their brethren in with them. That must be done through love for the nation and by example. That those who are pious among us may see them and wish to join them. One cannot draw a brother to Christ by hating his brother. On the other hand, those who claim to be Christians and instead of worshiping Christ, they make obeisance to his enemies, the Jew worshipers in Judeo-Christianity, or those who claim to be Christians and seek to violate the moral or racial boundaries clearly drawn out by Christ. It is they who need to be sharply rebuked no matter what they profess with their lips. For they honor Christ with their lips while their hearts are far from him. I want to discuss Hitler's nationalism. Hitler's nationalism was a strictly racial nationalism. Is it not? Absolutely. Hitler said in Mein Kampf that you cannot take, and he used the word, a nigger or a Chinaman, and bring him to Germany and make him German. He explained that in great detail. He also understood Genesis chapter 3 the same way that Christian identists understand it, most of us anyway, and the way we should understand it, as a trespass against blood and race when he said that the sin against blood and race was the hereditary sin in this world. And Everybody who's done it, every nation that's done it, has been cast out of paradise. And, Bill, I'd like to read real quick from page 219, Mein Kampf, but it is almost inconceivable how such a mistake could be made as to think that a nigger or a Chinaman will become a German because he has learned the German language and is willing to speak German for the future and even to cast his vote for a German political party. Our bourgeois nationalists could never clearly see that such a process of Germanization is in reality de-Germanization. For even if all the outstanding and visible differences between the various peoples could be bridged over and finally wiped out by the use of a common language, that would produce a process of bastardization, which in this case would not signify Germanization, but the annihilation of the German element. And that's what we're seeing in this country right now. People that say we should teach English to Mestizos, pat them on the head, and make them into Americans. In fact, most of them don't even learn English. Now, what identity Christian can despise Adolf Hitler's nationalism? Someone who's insincere or ignorant. Absolutely. Now, now I've been despised as a socialist, and, and the people who despise me as a socialist confuse socialism for Marxism, and, and we'll get to that soon. However, why don't we um, present the 25 points of the program of the National Socialist Party And and we can discuss those points. I mean, they're brief. It's 25 points, but they're really only a couple of pages. 
and and All right. we should probably discuss them in their entirety. All right. The program of the National Socialist German Workers Party. The program is the political foundation of the NSDAP and accordingly the primary political law of the state. It has been made brief and clear intentionally. All legal precepts must be applied in the spirit of the party program. Since the taking over of control, the Fuhrer has succeeded in the realization of essential portions of the party program from the fundamentals to the detail. The party program of the NSDAP was proclaimed on 24 February 1920 by Adolf Hitler at the first large party gathering in Munich, and since that day has remained unaltered. Within the National Socialist philosophy, is summarized in 25 points. Point one, we demand the unification of all Germans in the greater Germany on the basis of the right of self-determination of peoples. Well, which, is some, which is something that the New World Order sings about all the time, and they only pay lip service to it, but they profess it all the time that all peoples should have a right to self-determination. It was one of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, and I think what Wilson meant was the Czechs can vote to have you know, their, their area, the Slovaks get theirs, the Poles get theirs, but when Germans in Austria want to vote to join Germany, no, we're going to um, nullify and, and veto their vote. They don't get that choice. And this ties in with the second point. We demand equality of rights for the German people in respect to the other nations, abrogation of the peace treaties of Versailles and St. Germain. And the Treaty of St. Germain, it dissolved the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It mandated that Austria could never unify or join with Germany. And then it gave all the minority groups and, and previous minority groups in Austria-Hungary their own independent new nations. Well, which basically enslaves all of, the German, all of the people of German blood in those nations. Right. And interestingly enough, Austria really has no history of nationhood. Historically, there was no Austrian nation or Austrian state. Austria was just an empire held together by loyalty to the Habsburgs. So with the Habsburgs gone and Austria being a nation, they really just looked at where the Germans were an ultra-majority, and they declared that this is going to be Austria. But Austria, in the, in, the, in the sense of the word that we understand it today, the lines on the map, there's no historic Austrian state. No. Not in the sense that Germany has existed as Germany. So Austria was really an artificial creation at Versailles. Three, we demand land and territory, colonies, for the sustenance of our people and colonization of our surplus population. And I believe at the time, Britain controlled one-fourth of the entire world, and they had only not even, what, 10 or 20 people per square kilometer. And Germany was never smaller at, at any time in its history than in, you know, the, the um, post-World War I era. Germany had 80 million people, and they had something like five or 600 people per square kilometer. And the Germans had lost German Southwest Africa, German East Africa, and, you know, um, German West Africa, Cameroon. The British and French had gobbled up all of Germany's colonies, and what did they do with it? Did they develop any of those lands? They just started importing. You know, the French were importing Negroes as fast as possible into the Rhineland when they occupied the, the Saarland and the Rhineland in the early 20s. Right. And, and, and the, um, right, German was, Germany was stripped of her colonies in the Versailles, in, in the Versailles Treaty and after World War I and, and had no place to resettle its excess population, as just about every other nation in, in Europe had done. Right. And now they want to call German Southwest Africa Namibia, 
before the Germans went there, it was just a collection of, you know, Kaffir and Hottentot and Bushman tribes living in the wilderness. There was nothing of consequence in what became German Southwest Africa. And the British actually talked briefly about returning it to Germany, but then they expressed concern for the Africans, and they thought the Germans would treat them in a barbaric fashion, which when you consider how the British have been treating people in Ireland and India, it's laughable for the British to express concern for how indigenous people will be treated. Four, only a member of the race can be a citizen. A member of the race can only be one who is of German blood without consideration of creed. Consequently, no Jew can be a member of the race. And this is in stark contrast to the British and French concept of citizenship and, and nationhood, isn't it? The British think that, you know, you can move a Pakistani, a, a Pashtun, an Indian, a, a Kaffir, you can move them to Britain, teach them some basic English, and then they're fit to, you know, walk the streets of London and court a white woman. So it seems from the, the, from the very get-go, the British Empire was rotten to the core. And there are a lot of fetishists out there today that want to talk about how wonderful the British Empire was. Six, the right to determine matters concerning administration and law belongs only to the citizen. Therefore, we demand that every public office of any sort whatsoever, whether in the Reich, the county, or municipality, be filled only by citizens. We combat the corrupting parliamentary economy, office holding only according to party inclinations without consideration of character or abilities. And in the Weeby series, didn't we cover official after official, just corrupt Jewish judge letting off corrupt officials and corrupt business owners who would then either commit suicide or flee to Amsterdam or London or Palestine or the U.S.? Yeah, you know, when the Byzantine, when the Byzantine Empire had accepted um, Christianity, as its religion, and, and it eventually became the official religion of the empire, and, and that took some time. The, um, well, one of the first things that the emperors had done, and, and they did this collectively, it started with, it started with Constantinus II, and, and it went on to Theodosius I, Theodosius II, and, and up to Justinian, what was they had banned Jews from holding public office. A Jew cannot hold public office in a Christian society. And, 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 and if a Jew does hold public office in a Christian society, then the Christian society cannot possibly be maintained. And, and the United States history of the 1950s and 60s alone does more to prove that than we – there's more evidence there to prove that than we need to make our point. The early Byzantine emperors understood that the Jew had to be excluded from public life in a Christian society. Here, in, in these points in, in the NSDAP um, political platform here, points 4, 5, and 6 only ensure that Germany would stay German and stay Christian and stay moral. Because you can't have a moral Christian society with Jews in charge of it. Nobody in Christian identity and no white nationalist should ever despise national, the National Socialist Germany for these points in, in, in their political platform. Well, if I recall in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, in 1492, Shamor, the chief rabbi of Spain, wrote to the Grand Sanhedrin seated in Constantinople to ask them for advice. 
And one of the points, if I, let me see here. Here it is exactly, word for word. He said, as for what you say about the command to despoil you of your property, make your sons merchants that they may despoil little by little the Christians of theirs. Point five, as for the many other vexations you complain of, arrange that your sons become advocates and lawyers and see that you always mix in affairs of state, that by putting Christians under your yoke, you may dominate the world and be avenged on them. Absolutely. No, no doubt. And, and this is also a biblical principle. If you go back and read the laws in, in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you'll see that the strangers, the aliens, the Canaanites, they were excluded from the politics. They were excluded from, from the citizenship of the nation. That this is that this is a solid Christian principle here that's being outlined. Well, I would think too. Historically, Jews were not allowed to serve on a jury either, were they? And they weren't accepted as a witness. No, that that there were a lot of preclusions against Jews. They they couldn't hold Christian slaves. They couldn't loan money to Christians at usury. Usury was outlawed, and and all of these things have broken down in in modern society in in the pursuit of mammon. Would you like to continue? Number seven, we demand that the state be charged first with providing the opportunity for a livelihood and way of life for the citizens. If it is impossible to sustain the total population of the state, then the members of foreign nations, non-citizens, are to be expelled from the right. Well, right, and that's what we should practice today. When times get tough, the Mexicans got to go. The Chinese got to go. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in a country such as Germany, they gripe about record unemployment, yet every day they're bringing in more Turks. Right. Which, that, that seems, it seems paradoxical. It's, it's, it's very it's, odd. And, and, and it's lending to the more rapid destruction of the nation, which is what the Jews want. Right. In, in America, of course, they, they tell us that you know, the jobless rate is shrinking, but in actuality, there are a lot of people out of work. And what's our government's answer? import more foreign workers on H-1B visas and through open borders. Right. And, and they, 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 they snow people with the idea that that'll help the economy. I don't think it helps the economy to bring third world refuse into this country that doesn't speak the language, doesn't care about the nation, and they're basically here to get benefits. But nobody else wants to do those jobs. I, I'm being sarcastic, right? Well, I mean, if we didn't have Mexican gangbangers here to rape, kill, and steal... Someone has to do jobs the Americans don't want to do. We'd have a lot of police out of work if we deported all the Mexicans. Right. And then the police could do those jobs. <laughs> Point eight. Any further immigration of non-citizens is to be prevented. We demand that all non-Germans who have immigrated to Germany since the 2nd of August 1914 be forced immediately to leave the Reich. And that was actually pretty lenient. I would say so. And a lot of those people, I assume he's referring to the um, the Kaffirs that the French and British brought into the Rhineland. Well, well, the Kaffirs and the carpetbaggers, right? They were, right. Like, just like we had Jewish carpetbaggers down south, we had Jewish carpetbaggers in Germany. Nine. All citizens must have equal rights and obligations. We don't really see this with American socialists, the Marxian types. They they talk a big talk about equal rights, but the obligations never come along to match the rights. 
in, in, in essence, there are no equal rights in a Marxian society. No, no, there are no equal rights because there are no rights. Well, everybody's equally oppressed for the most right. part. And the first obligation of every citizen must be to work both spiritually and physically. The activity of individuals is not to counteract the interests of the universality, but must have its result within the framework of the whole for the benefit of all. Now, now I have tonight, and, and we'll see it at the end of, of this presentation because that's where I have it, but I have tonight some quotes from, from an official publication of the German Welfare Program explaining the German Welfare Program. And, and it was published in 1938. And we will see that this was actually the policy that was implemented. German socialism, national socialism, is not Marxism. Every citizen has an obligation to work. There are no handouts. And, and I'll present that later, but I, I just wanted the listeners to keep that in mind, that this, that all of these planks, everything here, all of these 25 points were actually employed when the National Socialists came to power. These weren't the, the empty rhetoric of American um, campaign promises and, and party platforms, which we have now, now in American society. What, where the Republicans create a platform, as soon as they come to office, they forget about the whole platform. Hardly any of it ever gets implemented in legislation. It, it, it's just for, for campaign propaganda, basically. Well, well, this was National Socialist campaign propaganda, but they followed through on the entire thing. They followed through on all of this. Absolutely, and it's not insulting sentimentality where an American progressive leftist will tell the poor people that, he feels their pain. He understands what they're going through, and he's going to see they get some handouts. They're not asking for handouts. They want dignity. They want, they want decent jobs. Absolutely, and, and, and I have a couple of quotes from Mein Kampf and from Scripture later on in this, in, in this presentation to show that Christianity and the National Socialists were both adverse to handouts. In the next few points, I'll make it clear in particular from an economic realm, why the Jews would see this as anathema. National socialism is anathema to the Jews, and I think we've already covered enough points to prove that, but the, the next point is particularly damning against the Jews. Point 11, abolition of unearned income, breaking of rent slavery. And for the Jew, almost all of the Jews' income is unearned. It's a passive income stream. He gains control of somebody else's capital. He owns it and then he hires people to manage it, and he doesn't even do anything. He sits back and works on undermining the nation with his ill-gotten gains, lobbying for open borders and corrupting the um, civic government. Yeah, you know, I think it was Thomas Aquinas who said, and, and he, he was one, he, Saint Thomas Aquinas, right? He, he was a Catholic bishop, and he actually wrote in a letter to one of the princesses of Europe, I forget which one exactly, that the Jew should not be allowed to keep what he has gained by usury. Real Christians understand that usury is evil and that the Jew is the primary practicer of usury in any society he enters. 
and enslaves people with usury. The Jew panders to our weaknesses. He, he gets us to gamble, to seek after narcotics, alcohol, anything that he could do to get us in debt so that he could loan us money and enslave us in usury. In today's consumer society, it's easy to get Christians into debt. And the Jew loves to loan them money. And by that, he, he, he owns us. He, he has us enslaved. Well, since there's a limited supply of money, since at, at some point money is a claim on resources or rather on finished goods which come from resources and raw materials and essentially all wealth comes from the ground at some time or another, and since there's a limited amount of wealth, when the Jew loans you more than you have, you have no way to pay him back now. If I have 10 pieces of silver and some Jew comes along and loans me 15, how, how do I make good on that? How do I pay him back? Early Christians understood that. Early Christians understood that in any community, when a usurer is active in a community, that that would cause a flow of resources out of the community. And you may not have the entire community borrowing money. It doesn't take the entire community. It only takes a segment of the community to be borrowing money at usury and that causes a flow of money and goods out of the community. And it has a negative impact on the entire community. Now, when you have a usurer in a community, and, and I'm using this as, as an example of, say, the Federal Reserve and, and, and the central banking system, when you have a usurer in a community and he alone he alone, he has a, um, a sole license to create and issue money at interest, and the people of the community are using that money, then the inevitable result is that the usurer ends up owning everything. There's no way around it. You cannot get around it. The usurer, because he has the sole license, he has a monopoly on the creation of money and it's being loaned out to the, to the citizens of the community at usury, there is no way around it. The inevitable result is that he comes to own everything. That's the Federal Reserve in this nation in the last hundred years. The bankers have come to own all of our property of note, all of our corporations, that they ultimately own them because and control them because they have monopoly rights to issue us money at usury. Well, there's no way to compete with them. We can't set up our own banking system and issue our own currency. We'd be raided and shut down. And, and that's why Goldman Sachs has the power to pick all the presidents, and, and that's why the Jews in this nation have come to the position they have because they are the usurers who have always favored one another at the disadvantage of Christians, and 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 it it just it it snowballs downhill. That there's no way around it. It's inevitable that the user is going to end up owning everything. Point twelve. In consideration of the monstrous sacrifice and property and blood that each war demands of the people, personal enrichment through a war must be designated as a crime against the people. Therefore, we demand the total confiscation of all war profits. 
And, and 13 goes along with it, so you may as well read that. We demand the nationalization of all previous associated industries. Now, now, now we see the military-industrial complex in this nation and, and how rich those industries have grown and, and how they perpetuate wars for their own profit. And, and Adolf Hitler understood that same thing and, and came to that understanding after the First World War, which he took a, a minor role in. He was a corporal, but he was still involved in it and, and saw it firsthand. That the, the defense industry should belong to the state because the defense industry's purpose is to build armaments in defense of the people. The defense industry being allowed to be a private um, interest, well, well, the defense industries in every nation, they want to cause wars because they want to make profits. And the, it's the bankers that have owned the, the defense industry and have controlled the defense industries all throughout time. And, and, and that they profit immensely by initiating wars and, and, and getting us into war. And, and Adolf Hitler saw it to prevent that, and, and that's a noble endeavor to seek to prevent that. That, there was, um, that There's something that we have to study, and that's Gerald Nye's commission in, in the 1920s, and, and that's where Gerald Nye, the U.S. senator, coined the term merchants of death. He pointed out that it was the bankers in, in, in league with, with, with the, um, the industrialists in the defense industry that profited greatly from getting us into the First World War. And, and they steered our national policy towards getting us into that war so that they could profit. And so that they like profit to, from the military buildup. Read a brief quote from a speech given on 8 November 1940. The German Volk wants to have peace finally. It wants a peace that allows it to work and which does not allow international scoundrels to agitate among other peoples against us. These are the folks who make their fortunes through war. I have no reason to wage war for material considerations. For us, it is but a sad enterprise. It robs us, the German Volk, and the whole community of so much time and manpower. I do not possess any stocks in the armament industry. I do not earn anything in this war. I would be happy... If we could work again as I used to work for my Volk. But these international war criminals are at the same time the armament industry's greatest black marketeers. They own the factories. They make business. They are the same people we had here in Germany earlier. There can be but one confrontation with these people. One of us must break. Well, well it's for these reasons that Adolf Hitler was smeared by the Jews and, and national socialism is smeared by the Jews in the, in the Jewish-controlled Western media ever since 1932. And, and it's for these reasons, because he's creating a society that basically eliminates the parasites. That, that basically the, the Jewish moneylenders cannot, cannot operate in Germany. They cannot have those unearned incomes that they're, they're so accustomed to. The Jewish land speculators who are able to get money from the outside, from outside Germany, buy up all the land during the Weimar Republic and, and, and rent it out at, at, at usurious rates and, and at incredibly high rates to German farmers and to others who need to use that land, they had to go. They had to go for the health of Germany 
they had to go for the health of the nation so that the German people could have a right to self-determination. And, and Adolf Hitler broke them. And, and that, that's why they, they declared war on Hitler as soon as he got into power, because they knew this was coming. At the end of the day, it was about bastardization. You know, some filthy Jew from the East would move into Germany, practice usury, become ridiculously wealthy, and then he used his money and his influence to get German women and corrupt them. Well, right, and we see that in America all the time. How many blondes do you see in New York on the arms of Jews? I forget the when the entire was. British nobility is corrupted with Jewish blood. Oh, absolutely. And I forget when the speech was. I don't remember the date or the year, but Hitler basically said that when I came to power in 1933, if I had stood up and said, well, men in Geneva, Amsterdam, London, and New York, how many hundreds of millions of marks shall I send you this month in reparations? And, and what more do you need from this German state? What shall we do for you this month? How many billions will it be next month? And, you know, Hitler explained that if I had done that, if I had been willing to hand over Germany on a silver platter to them, they would have applauded and shouted, and all the world press would have said, finally, a reasonable ruler in Germany. Right. What great things to look forward to from Hitler. Well, well, absolutely. But he explained that he wasn't willing to hand over Germany and sell out the homeland to a bunch of international bankers and swindlers. Well, well the history of America and, and Europe since World War II totally vindicates Adolf Hitler and National Socialists. Anybody who is awake to the Jewish problem should admit that readily and be happy to admit that. Absolutely. And, and especially people in Christian identity. Well, basically, the Jew wants everything we have. If we defend ourselves, we're haters, and we're, we're going to be defamed and vilified and demonized in the history books. No doubt. Would you like to read point 14? Point 14. We demand a division of profits of all heavy industries. And no. I guess he's referring to what fewer left because the Jews thoroughly gutted the German armaments industry and sold it all for, you know, pennies on the dollar. Oh, well, right. But heavy industries are, are industries that have a, a, um, a great reliance on national resources, on infrastructure. The Jew would have the taxpayers build the highways and, 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 and then he destroyed highways with his tractor trailers and, and not care because they're paid for by the taxpayers. Well, and, and that's just an extreme example, but, but it's one of many examples that hold true and can, can be demonstrated. And, and that's, you know, the, the, the taxpayers build the infrastructure and they're not profiting from it. Well, they do. Have a great tax that they, that they put a great burden on the land. They're necessary for national defense. They're necessary for a lot of things. But the profiteers have to come clean and, and give back to the, to, to the state that they're making these, where, where they have these industries that they're profiting from. They have to give back because the natural resources and the infrastructure that they are placing a great burden on in, in, in the continuance of their industry, well, well, they have to, the people own those things. The corporations don't. The industrialists don't. So, so a, a, a profit split on heavy industry, uh, I believe, is quite fair. However, in a Marxist socialism, the state would own the heavy industry. There would be no profit. The state would keep all the profit. Well, also, let, let's look real quick at the RLC. 
in the former Soviet Union. The Soviets diverted the sea for their irrigation and heavy industry. They used a lot of that water in heavy industry applications and cotton plantation irrigation. And now the RLC is at an all-time low, and it's been split into two seas, the North RLC and the South RLC. It's an environmental disaster. It's an ecological nightmare, so much for the left caring about the environment. And, of course, the Soviet government was never concerned whether or not the people nearby who were fishermen and depended on the sea, if they had their livelihood wiped out, they diverted as much water as they needed for heavy industry for the Soviet communist state, and everyone else could just suffer. Well, well, that's because the Soviet Union was really a Rothschild enterprise, right? Right. It was a Jewish for-profit enterprise. But in a Western society, Jewish big business would drain a lake. They'd divert, you know, 100 billion gallons a year for heavy industry, and then it would be up to taxpayers to foot the bill to refill the lake. Well, well right. Adolf Hitler's saying here that if you're operating a heavy industry, we have to split the profits because of the tax burden, of, of the burden that that puts on the land and the environment, that that has to be maintained. And he's not even calling, I mean, he doesn't say what kind of split. I mean, he's not saying 80-20 in our favor. He's not even saying 50-50. It could be 20% he wants. Right. I, I don't know how it was put into practice. We would have to study it. Point 15. We demand an expansion on a large scale of old age welfare. It seems in, in the U.S. the main the, um, the the main procedure seems to be a person becomes old, his heirs toss him in a nursing home, the government takes the estate to pay for the nursing home bill, and then the heirs are left with nothing, and maybe they see Grandpa once a year on a holiday. Well, well, right. I, I have my own thoughts on this. I, I don't. I feel that families should be. Um... Uh, I feel that families should be required to look out for their elderly. However, society is not ideal. A lot of times elderly people don't have families or families simply aren't able to do it. And, and, and it, it's, it, it can be argued interminably what should happen to the aged in, in any society that cares about its people. However, um, we, we see... A care for the for the elderly, it is. Um, I'm sure it, in practice it was probably qualified that that wealthy right. families, wealthy elderly, weren't eligible for for free old age homes and for free care. I, I don't know. It, it's I don't know how they put it into practice. However, it does show a care for elderly people. And, and um, that's necessary in, in, in any society, right? Well, I don't know how they implemented it, but the, the present system in this country is untenable and intolerable and unacceptable. Well, it's a Ponzi scheme the way this country does it. Uh, I don't know how the National Socialists implemented it. Well, I'm not talking about Social Security. That's a whole other issue, and I don't want to get into that can of worms. But it, it's a damning indictment against American family structure when Chinamen and Kaffirs come here. They're shocked that you know regular white Americans just shunt off the old folks to a, a warehouse and leave them to die. Well, well, that is horrible. It, it's absolutely horrible. I could never do it. And, and we shouldn't do it. Christians shouldn't put their parents into old age homes. All right. Point and, and leave their Gerard, right? We demand the creation of a healthy middle class and its conservation. 
immediate communalization of the great warehouses and they're being leased at low cost to small firms, the utmost consideration of all small firms and contracts with the state, county, or municipality. In America, it seems it's the exact opposite. Well, well, no, well, well, well compare this to Marxism, to Marxist socialism. What, what middle class? The, the middle class in, 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 in yeah, you know, maybe Marx in theory ha- had a working class, but the middle class was, was the bourgeois, and, and they were destroyed in the Soviet Union. Well, they were destroyed under the Bolshevik Revolution. Absolutely, and, and what, what's going on in this country, I think it's, we, we can get some insight from Lenin on this. Lenin declared, quote, the way to crush the bourgeoisie is to grind them between the millstones of taxation and inflation. And in America, the, the NKVD is not here shooting middle-class landowners in the back of the head and throwing them in the woods. They're crushing us with taxation and inflation. Well, well a study of Goebbels would, would show that his idea of the bourgeois were those people who lived off of unearned incomes. And that's what Hitler wanted to, that, that's what this NSDA policy wants to eliminate. It wanted to abolish unearned incomes, incomes off, off of um, speculation and usury and, and, and rent slavery and things like that. What, where um, Marx's bourgeois was anybody who ever employed another person or, or held any, any of the means of production and, okay. and were a member of bourgeois and you, and you were a target. So if you're a self-sufficient man who owns 12 acres of land, a few dozen chickens, two cows, and your, your three sons work on your farm, you, you've got a bullet with your name on it. Well, well, absolutely. In the Marxist system, yes, that's the way it was put into practice in Bolshevik Russia. And, and we discussed that at great length when we presented Russia number one a couple of years ago. That this, here, Hitler's National Socialism that is promoting the, the maintenance of a healthy middle class and its conservation where Marxism promotes the obliteration of the middle class, looting the middle class and physically destroying them. 17. We demand a land reform suitable to our provision of a law for the free expropriation of land for the purposes of public utility, abolition of taxes on land, and prevention of all speculation in land. I don't think Marx would ever advocate abolishing any tax, let alone on land. Well, well, you weren't allowed to own land, so why would you be taxed on it? Absolutely. Well, let's look at the first point of the Communist Manifesto again. Abolition of all property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. So, so it's obvious that National Socialism is not Marxism. Exactly. And, and the Marxists today... When they claim that Soviet farmers were allowed to keep their land, the land was simply collectivized, and they still own their home, and they own the possessions inside, they're academically dishonest, and they're being disingenuous because they know better. The, the Grover Furs of the world who talk about how private property wasn't obliterated in the Soviet Union. They're educated enough that they're not speaking from ignorance. They know better. They're purposely trying to conceal the truth. Right. 18. Well, one, well, I almost forgot to address the speculation in land. And the Jewish land speculators are pretty well ruining this country, aren't they, by driving up the price of an acre of land to a quarter million dollars in some areas. Look, look at the bubbles. Look, look at the bubbles that they caused in, in the 80s and, and recently. 
the, the real estate market that just bubbled and crashed and, and burned. And a lot of speculators and, made and, money. And people were, were um, foolish enough to buy homes at, at five or six times their value, and when the bubble burst, that they were left with huge mortgages and, and no way to pay them and no way to sell the property except for a song. Uh, I mean, how many people had foreclosures or walked away from from their homes? But if you're a sincere, genuine, faithful Christian trying to live in accordance with the Word of God, you don't pay $800,000 for a home that's worth 200000 because you figure, oh, in a year I'll flip it for a million and a half if some dupe down the street. Well, well, of course not, but how many people were sucked in by that mentality? House. It's just, Gambling, basically. Well, well, it is, but but it, it's the, that that's what the Jew does. He panders to our weaknesses and 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 keeps coming up with schemes to suck us into something. The internet bubble, the real estate bubble. It's one bubble after another. We demand struggle without consideration against those whose activity is injurious to the general interest. Common national criminals, users. Shiber and so forth are to be punished with death without consideration of confession or raise. I have to admit that I couldn't find a reference for Shiber here. Mm. He, he could have used a more well-known one like Cats and Ellen Bogan. But I, I think there were there were no shortage of Jewish usurers in Germany in the twenties, were there? Well, well, no. In in, in Germany in the nineteen twenties. The, the mark was being drastically devalued, and the only people that could really buy property were the people who could get money from outside of Germany. And who would that be? The Jews. And the Jews were able to buy up large sections of German industry, German property, houses, farms, for a song. And, and Hitler's policies and the National Socialist policies sought to reverse that. There was a great theft of Germany in the 1920s, which transferred much German wealth from the hands of a helpless German people to the international Jews. And Hitler's policy sought to reverse that. And just to um, give people an idea, in 1919... One gold mark, I believe, was worth one paper mark. And in 1923, one gold mark was worth one trillion paper marks. And if you're the average German farmer, there was nothing you could do about that. There was no way to defend, to defend yourself from it. And you would have to sell your farm for a song. And, and that happened all over Germany. And there was one particular banker, a capitalist type, he proposed that people should have currency backed by mortgages, mortgage bonds indexed to market prices, and that he, he, he said that farmers should be able to have currency issued against their crops. I'm sure that would have just wiped out every small farmer in Germany. Point 19. We demand substitution of a German common law in place of the Roman law serving a materialistic world order. Right. The Roman law, Roman law had ruled over Germany for most of its history, right? It was imposed in the Holy Roman Empire. It was imposed again by Napoleon. The Napoleonic Code was basically a recodification of Roman law. 
in, in America, we're seeing an erosion of the common law, and they're now looking to international law. Sotomayor, for instance, in a case she heard about five or six years ago, she cited international court precedent. Well, what goes on in an international court should have no bearing upon a... She, she should have been hung immediately. She should have been hung immediately, but people people won't act. They don't care about the sovereignty of the nation. That They only care about their bread and their circuses. I'm not interested, though, in what a German court, a French court, a Chinese court, or an Israeli court issued in a ruling. I don't see it as a basis for making an American case law. International law is really is really the um, the study of treaties, right? Right. And, that matters. In today's today's world, that means the United Nations, right? And case law is a bad source for law, in, in, anyway, case law just means what some what a few judges before you said, and what if they were wrong, or what if it was unconstitutional? Case law is Talmudism. Case law is Talmudism. Study well, Talmud. Read the Mishnah and, and, and read the decisions of the rabbis. And one rabbi says this and one rabbi says that. And then another rabbi makes a decision based on what this rabbi and those rabbis said. And he, he, he writes a decision. That, that's the Talmud. That's what the Talmud is. That, that's what a good section of the Talmud is. All of the Mishnah, the commentaries on the law in the Talmud, that's what it is. It's case law. We didn't have case law in this country uh, until we started having Jewish lawyers. Case law didn't take precedence until, I think, Brandeis, the first Jewish Supreme Court justice. And, and that's when case law started taking precedence over the Constitution. And then with the Talmud, two or three generations will go by, and then you'll have rabbis arguing over what, what those rabbis actually meant and which, which one of the 50 was right. Every case should only be weighed against the Constitution. And, and case law in, in federal court shouldn't, shouldn't hold any weight at all. Every case in, in, in state court should only be weighed against the state law and, and, and legislation and the state constitutions. Case law is evil. Case law, case law brings... Um, it, it creates a situational ethics in, in law, and, and, and one lawyer presents a bunch of cases that, pre, that, that support his side, and the other lawyer presents a bunch of cases that support his side, and the judge gets to pick. It's all sophistry. Well, well it's horrible. It, it's the Talmud all over again. Point 20. The state is to be responsible for the fundamental reconstruction of our whole national education program to enable every capable and industrious German to obtain higher education and subsequently introduction into leading positions. The plans of instruction of all educational institutions are to conform with the experiences of practical life. The comprehension of the concept of the state must be driven for by the school as early as the beginning of understanding. We demand the education at the expense of the state of outstanding intellectually gifted children of poor parents without consideration of position or profession. And of course in America, nominally we have a public education system, but for a lot of people in areas that are heavily black or Mexican, sending your children to those schools is just sending them to their death. Well, well in America they take the worst students and, and simply based on the color of their skin give them free educations, right? Point 21, 
The state is to care for the elevating national health by protecting the mother and child, by outlawing child labor, by the encouragement of physical fitness, by means of the legal establishment of a gymnastic and sport obligation, by the utmost support of all organizations concerned with the physical instruction of the young. And there's no parallel in America. We have a, what, a, a child obesity and child diabetes epidemic, which is shameful. Right. That, that, this was actually, they tried to implement this in America with the mandatory physical education programs in the 1960s and 70s. That, that they were um, 30 years behind Hitler, right? 22. We demand abolition of the mercenary troops and formation of a national army. And I, I don't think he means mercenary in the sense that they're, they're, the soldiers are from some other country. They're not, you know, Poles or Russians or Americans serving in the German army for excessive pay. But I think at the time, most people in the military were motivated primarily by money, just like our military today. Right. It's called a volunteer military, but a volunteer military to me would be what the founding fathers had. They had people that brought their own equipment. They weren't paid. They were provided food and board during the campaign. And then when the war was over, they went home. Right, it's motivated by money and populated by careerists and, and people that are expecting a, 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 um, a steady paycheck and, and, and a bunch of bonuses and, and free education and all of the other quirks that they offer these, uh, these poor saps to go and hoard their lives away overseas. If, if, if they truly want to volunteer, they can have the government pay for their food, room, and board, and they don't get a paycheck, or maybe they get a small stipend and they can send the rest of the money to paying down the national debt. Now, now they're still in the ranks of the military with, with promises to mestizos of, of citizenship and, and other quirks. Well, there was a Marine Corps general about five or six years ago. He proposed that we bring 25,000 to 30,000 Cubans, Mexicans, and other Central American and Caribbeans into the, the U.S. explicitly to join the Marine Corps. He said we could give them citizenship and that they would make an excellent internal security force because they would have little connection or attachment to the country, and they would have very few reasons to hesitate to shoot Americans. And, and that's the same reason why Rome would, would, would take legions, assemble legions in one conquered territory and assign them to serve in another conquered territory. But because the Bretons really didn't care about the Greeks, and the Greeks really didn't care about the Germans, and the Germans really didn't care about... The, the Judeans and and so on and so forth. That that's the that that is a um, it, it's a method of maintaining control over a tyranny. Absolutely. Point twenty three. We demand legal opposition to known lies and their promulgation through the press. In order to enable the provision of a German press, we demand a. All writers and employees of the newspapers appearing in the German language be members of the race. B, non-German newspapers be required to have the express permission of the state to be published. They may not be printed in the German language. C, non-Germans are forbidden by law any financial interest in German publications or any influence on them, and as punishment for violations, the closing of such a publication, as well as the immediate expulsion from the Reich of the non-German concerned. Publications which are counter to the general good are to be forbidden. We demand legal prosecution of artistic and literary forms which exert a destructive influence on our national life. 
and the closure of organizations opposing the above-made demands. Basically so, translated, what this means is in America, there would be no Jewish press, there'd be no ACLU, SPLC, ADL, B'nai B'rith, all those destructive organizations, NAMBLA, they're all gone. Right, absolutely. They're all gone. And anything deemed um, contrary to German morals is gone. That, that There's no pornography. There's no garbage art. That there's no how, how do we quantify the 25 points of the NSDAP? They seek to get rid of pornography and immorality in, in the nation, which poisons and destroys the nation. And we see that in America today. They seek to um, maintain Germany for Germans. It's nationalist. And, and there's no Christian identist who should despise that. They seek to get rid of the usurers and, and the speculators and the other parasites on, on the lifeblood of a nation. There's no Christian that should despise that. While, while we can argue about care for the elderly and little, little idiosyncrasies of, of, of the policy, there's really nothing in here that any Christian should despise. And, and everything in here should be fully respected by anyone who claims to be a Christian. Well, you know, a lot of people in America, Christians especially, they're not aspiring to be the best possible Christian that they can be. They're aspiring to become a rent, a renter, you know, living off of rents and usury, and they're aspiring to become a degenerate. Or they're, well, they're, they're in love with the morality. Jewish materialistic society that National Socialist Germany was opposed to. That's because they, they've adopted the Jewish credo of he who dies of the most toys wins, when every Christian should really know that he who dies with the most toys loses. Absolutely. And we see a lot of people today, they're, they're not aspiring to walk humbly with God. They're aspiring to become the next American idol. Well, well again, that's, that, that's the... Um, They've soaked up Jewish morality, lock, stock, yeah, yeah, and barrel. That's the, the, the Jewish injection of the ego in, in, into society, and, and everything is about I and me, and, and I'm going to be a star, and I'm going to be famous, and I'm going to be rich. And, and every Christian, every American, I should say, every Westerner is pursuing those Jewish models of, of success which are all based on materialism. And, and when you have a community of egos who have no care for one another, the parasites reign free. Absolutely. Point 24. We demand freedom of religion for all religious denominations within the state so long as they do not endanger its existence or oppose the moral senses of the Germanic race. The party as such advocates the standpoint of a positive Christianity without binding itself confessionally to any one denomination. It combats the Jewish materialistic spirit within and around us and is convinced that a lasting recovery of our nation can only succeed from within on the framework common utility precedes individual utility. And the only Christians that I know that despise National Socialism are still caught up in the Jewish materialistic spirit. And that's absolutely true even of a lot of identity Christians. They, they claim to be Christians, and, and they might know their identity, but they sure as hell don't act like Christians. 
They're capitalists, and, and they're still caught up in that he who dies of the most toys wins, every man out for himself. All, all of those other Jewish slogans and, and philosophies that destroy Christian community. Point 25. For the execution of all of this, we demand the formation of a strong central power in the Reich, unlimited authority of the central parliament over the whole Reich and its organizations in general, the forming of state and profession chambers for the execution of the laws made by the Reich within the various states of the Confederation. The leaders of the party promise, if necessary, by sacrificing their own lives to support by the execution of the points set forth above without consideration. Well, well that's, yeah, you know, National Socialism was democratic in, in, in as so far as the party was concerned, that if the party was elected, that, then the leaders which the party has chosen, they would run the nation carte blanche. But the party had to be elected. So, so it was democratic in a sense, but it was also anti-parliamentarianism. Because Hitler understood that parliamentarianism got bogged down in competing interests and nothing ever gets accomplished. And, and we see that in our own Congress all the time. We see it in the, in the Congresses of Europe all the time. Parliamentarianism it is actually contrary to, to any form of accomplishment, whether the accomplishment, whether you agree with the party in power or not, in a parliamentary system and in our congressional system, a, a, a house divided, it, it can't stand. It, it can't ever get anything done. So, so it was a democratic system in the sense that the party was elected. But once the party was elected, the party leadership, they controlled the nation, and, and what they wanted to get done got done. And that's the way Adolf Hitler was managed to resurrect Germany from the ashes of Versailles and the Weimar Republic. And he basically did create a, a, um, a, a paradise to the extent that man could create a national paradise on earth. National Socialist Germany had a very vibrant culture, a very vibrant economy, even though it was very short-lived. And it was only short-lived because the Jew wanted it destroyed, because the Jew couldn't deal with it, but because it was totally antithetical to everything that the Jew stood for, and because Americans and, and Britons were more, more than happy to be whores for the Jew. We see a lot of people that denounce Hitler as a dictator. I think Hitler had a clear mandate from the German people. Well, well he, he did actually, actually the first... Um, when they first came to power, it was only a plebiscite. They didn't have a 50% majority of the votes, and he had to form a coalition government. However, when the German people saw that his policies were all positive for Germany, and in the second time that he was elected, they had over a 90% plurality. Where in this country, there are some leaders officials who are saying that Obama has a clear mandate and that the right wing is hindering his program for America and that he should just throw all of his opponents into... Um, well, well, that again is Jewish media propaganda. The Jew controls the media, he controls the argument, and, and if Christians and, and, and any nationalist Americans 
subscribe to the Jew media, that then then they're polluted with the arguments of the Jew, and, and they're caught in the Jewish paradigm, and, and they can't break out of the mold and see what's actually going on. Uh, Christian socialism. Let's talk about socialism and Christianity, and I'm talking about real Christian community. And when I talk about socialism, I mean socialism along the lines of Adolf Hitler's national socialism, which was not Adolf Hitler's. It was actually um, it, it was actually the, the thesis was put down on paper by French philosophers. And, and, and French political philosophers at, at least 50 or 60 years before Adolf Hitler. So, so it, it, national socialism it is actually a, a thesis that was made in response to feudalism and capitalism and, and, and communism and all of the other isms that were popular in, in Europe from the time of, of the Age of Enlightenment and, and the... French Revolution and, and the destruction of the nobility. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they were firmly adhering to the teaching of the ambassadors, or the apostles, and in the fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs came through the ambassadors. And all those believing were in the same place, and held all things in common, and possessions and belongings they sold, and distributed them to all just as anyone had need. And each day, persevering with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread at each house, they partook of food in exultation and in simplicity of heart, praising Yahweh and having goodwill toward all the people. And the Lord added to those being saved daily in that place. And now I'm going to read Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. And the multitude of those believing were of one heart and soul, and no one reckoned any of his belongings to be his own. But everything was common to them. And with great power the ambassadors delivered the testimony of the resurrection of Prince Joshua, and great favor was with them all. Indeed, neither was there any deficiency among them, for as many, I'm sorry, my screensaver went off. For as many as were owners of farms or houses, selling them, brought the proceeds of the things sold, and set it by the foot of the ambassadors. And they distributed to each just as any had need. Then Joseph, who was called Barnabas by the ambassadors, which is interpreted son of consolation, a Levite, a Cypriot by birth, selling a farm belonging to him, brought the money and set it before the feet of the ambassadors. Here the example of true Christian communion is given, to which must be compared, and, and I will compare Josephus's account of the nearly identical practices among the Essenes, found in Wars of the Judeans, Book 2, lines 119 to 1. I'm, I'm only going to read line 122 here. These men, the Essenes, are despisers of riches, and so very communicative as raises our admiration. Nor is there anyone to be found among them who is more than, than another, for it is a law among them that those who come to them must let what they have be common to the whole order, insomuch that among them 
all, there is no appearance of poverty or excess of riches. But everyone's possessions are intermingled with everyone's possessions, and so there is, as it were, one patrimony among all the brethren. Now, the word communion, as I've just, the the word common, I'm sorry, as I just read it in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, and Acts 4.32, is from the Greek word koinos, and it means common, something shared in common, as opposed to something idious, which is something privately held, common to or with another, common to all the people, to the public, common in general. It's just a word that means common. It, it means that we share it among ourselves. Coinus is related to the word translated in Acts 20, chapter 242 as fellowship in the Christogenian New Testament, which is a word koinonia. Koinonia is communion association, partnership, or fellowship. Now, the Catholic Church has distorted the meaning of the word communion in the minds of many people by using it to, the, to denote their mystery ritual. The word does not describe any ritual in the New Testament, but rather intends, as its primary dictionary definition states, the act or an instance of sharing, which is what how the word communion is actually defined in the American Heritage College Dictionary. The word koinonia, communion, is found, or fellowship, is found 19 times in the New Testament. In the King James Version, it's communion only four of those times. The true mystery of communion is not possessed by the Roman Church or any other. The true mystery is why so few realize that the body and blood of Christ are actually those Israelites sitting around the table. And I could cite 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 17, and chapter 12, verse 12, to prove that assertion. The word communion is related to the words common, community, and communism. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of eulogy which we bless, is it not fellowship? communion of the body of Christ. The wheat bread which we break, is it not fellowship, koinonia, communion, of the body of Christ? Because one loaf, one body, we the many are, for we all partake from the one loaf, the real body of Christ of the Israelites sitting around the table. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body being many are one body, so also the anointed, the body of Christ. Communism as we know it today is evil as its sinister sister socialism, and when I say that I mean the Marxist socialism of modern thinking. Socialism is really in, in the Jewish media and the way that we all use it today because of the Jewish media. The word socialism has become just a euphemism for, for, for communism, which is the way it's used today in the Jewish media and the way the rest of us use it because of the Jewish media. Communism is really just the political expression of Talmudism. These things are evil. And the distinctions between socialism and communism, the way the media and, and the popular vernacular use of terms, are tenuously drawn. 
They are modern products of Jewish thinking, which have all the West and all of Christendom enslaved today. We are all communist nations today. We'll read the Ten Planks of the Communist Manifesto one day on this program and, and discuss them. Communism and socialism, the way they practice today, are enforced by the state, are blind to ethnicity, and have a general disregard for moral character. That's why they're evil. Christian communion is not forced by the state. It's based upon the community. And the larger state is not truly a factor in the habits of daily life because Christians don't rely on the state. The state is not the God of Christians. Christianity is not ethnically blind. Rather, it is wholly racist. Christianity is nationalism. And those who are of reprehensible moral character and are unrepentant, the Bible, the Scripture commands us to eject those people from our community. Morally reprehensible people, we are not forced or compelled to share the fruits of our hands with. In a Christian community, the slothful are penalized, but the workman is to be rewarded. The workman is worthy of his wage, Matthew 10.10. The slothful are penalized. He who does not work, neither may he eat, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Now, this is going to be an unpopular statement with all those who formulate their opinions based upon the Jewish media and popular consensus. The states which most closely resembled the true Christian model in modern times were Tsarist Russia and National Socialist Germany. The Jews destroyed them both. The Russia of the Tsars was basically a collection of communities under a king. The king helped protect them from capitalist oppressors. That's, Tsarist Russia is best portrayed in the book The Third Rome, Holy Russia, Tsarism, and Orthodoxy by Michael Raphael Johnson. It's a much-needed departure from the Bolshevik treatments of the subject produced by most academics today who are controlled by the Jews the bankers, the media, Jewish thinking. They copy each other and they copy Jewish writers talking about Tsarist Russia. And they're the only books that get published because the Jews sure as hell don't want you to know the truth. While it was a state apparatus, National Socialist Germany attempted to form a properly ethnic nation with all the interests of all of its ethnic German citizens as its primary responsibility. Before criticizing that state, one point should be kept in mind. While the entire West was enthralled in a depression which lasted 15 years, and actually it lasted longer than that, but it's perceived generally as having ended with America's entry into the war, under the control of Jewish-owned central banks, and that depression did not end until the governments of the West agreed to military action against Germany, which the Jews wanted to destroy, Germany, under 
the National Socialists did not suffer such a depression. Germany was pulled out of the depression by the National Socialists. Germany was not under the control of the Jewish Central Bank and enjoyed an economic boom during the 1930s and well into the war. Rather than demonizing Adolf Hitler, Christians should be studying his economic policies. They should be studying the 25 points of the NSDAP. The secret to Germany's success lies in them. The secret to the reasons why the Jews had to destroy Germany lies in them. These notes that I just read on Christian socialism, I prepared for a series of programs on the Book of Acts, which I did with Eli James, and I read them in that series. At that time, not a word in objection was said to my statements, although today he slanders me as a neo-Nazi. Christianity and National Socialism both disparage handouts. We just saw that in the 25 points of, of the NSDAP party policy. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Also when we were with you, this we instructed you, that if anyone wishes not to work, neither must he eat. All of the Christians of those early Christian communities detailed in the book of Acts, they were able to share everything that they owned in common with each other because they all worked together as a community. Mein Kampf, page 24, Adolf Hitler. I do not know which is the more nefarious to ignore social distress, as do the majority of those who have been favored by fortune and those who have risen in the social scale through their own routine labor, or the equally supercilious and often tactless but always genteel condescension displayed by people who would make a fad of being charitable and who would plume themselves on sympathizing with the people. In other words, Adolf Hitler was adverse to handouts. He was adverse to what we in America see as welfare programs and food stamp programs. Mein Kampf, page 27. During my struggle for existence in Vienna, I perceived very clearly that the aim of all social activity must never be merely charitable relief. Adolf Hitler didn't believe in income redistribution the way American liberals see socialism. Adolf Hitler didn't believe in the state dole and, and food lines the way the Marxists practice socialism. There's no food because they take it all and then everybody gets two slices of bread. That was not Adolf Hitler's socialism. Adolf Hitler's socialism was the installation of programs that allowed communities and people to help each other, which is very possible once the Jewish parasites and speculators are eliminated from society. Adolf Hitler's socialism. was entirely Christian. 
During my struggle for existence in Vienna, I perceived very clearly that the aim of all social activity must never be merely charitable relief, which is ridiculous and useless, but it must rather be a means to find a way of eliminating the fundamental deficiencies in our economic and cultural life, deficiencies which necessarily bring about the degradation of the individual or at least lead him towards such degradation. Those deficiencies were caused by the Jews, just like they are in America today. That's why we have so many homeless white people out there and so many niggers in mansions. From the booklet, Social Welfare in Germany, I'm going to read um, three paragraphs from this booklet to give the reader, the listener, an idea of what social welfare was considered in National Socialist Germany. And we will see that it was Christian, and it was not Marxist by any means. Actually, the American welfare programs are much closer to Marxism than, than National Socialist Germany ever was. This booklet was published in um, 1938 by the Terramar office in Berlin. It was written by Werner Rehr, R-E-H-E-R. I have a copy of this booklet, which I hope to get online sooner or later. Uh, I have to edit it after it's having been OCR'd, optical character recognition. There's a lot of errors, and, and it's a huge task, right? I, I have actually a lot of such booklets that need to be done. This booklet was provided to me by my friend um, Muniker, who, who is the sometimes writer on the gentlecynic.org. In the welfare services, just as in every other branch of national activity, our most important and at the same time most difficult task is to re-educate the people in their attitude towards life. They must be brought to realize the truth that human beings have been sent into this world not to suffer but to struggle. God has placed them here to flourish and bear fruit just as the tree does. Now bear in mind that this booklet reflects the official National Socialist Germany policy on social welfare. Through pain and adversity, they must grow in strength. The fir tree that grows on a mountain has to struggle hard for its life. It must hold out against the wind and storm. And the effect of the wind and storm is that the trunk of the tree gradually thickens layer by layer on a side that is assailed until the little mountain fir can erect, stand erect against the elements. We see that the National Socialists believed in both God and in the earthly trials which strengthen Christians. And Christians should see that also. That's how Christians should had their outlook on the world. We would call it God and nature, right? It must hold out against wind and storm, and the effect of the wind and storm is that the trunk of the tree gradually thickens layer by layer on the side that is assailed until the little mountain fir can stand erect against the elements. We see the same thing happening in the history of nations. Periods of adversity which befall the nations and which the nations must overcome help to develop their strength. By, but everything that endures through periods of adversity represents the result of a selection from among the people, a result of the same process of selection that we see everywhere in life. 
Everything that lives has to go through a person, a period of trial, and will be cast aside if it is weak. That quote from Hilgenfeld served as a preface to the book. Now from page three. In all civilized countries, there are organizations for social assistance which owe their their origin and maintenance to private initiative. Some of these operate under the aegis of religious denominations and others are carried on by lay associations which have been established to meet some definite social need. The idea which inspires all these springs from the Christian principle of love for the neighbor, the idea of doing good to others. Then there are social welfare activities which are subsidized and directed by the state. And these are also inspired by the Christian principle. The desire and purpose of all such undertakings is to foster a social policy whereby the economic distress of the individual will be made at least bearable. Thus, the underlying presumption is that the economic distress is a permanent condition in which a certain class of the community must live. Should temporary distress arise, temporary measures are generally adopted to meet it. But the uniform postulate on which social welfare activities are generally based is the belief that the poor will always be with us. The preaching and practice of this principle weakens, and we've seen this in our own welfare programs, generation after generation. The preaching and practice of this principle weakens the moral resistance of those who find themselves in need of assistance. And I would add, that simply because Christ stated that the poor will always be with us doesn't mean that we could give people an excuse to despair. And that's the point which the booklet makes. That's the point which the German social welfare policy makes. Yes, there will always be poor with us, but we must give the poor the means to become unpoor. That was the National Socialist policy to give people the opportunity to work their way out of poverty. They don't have that here in, under Jewish capitalism in America. Not often. Page six. Germany is now endeavoring to establish a new social concept of the state and its functions. This idea is based on a traditional union between the people and their native land. The German idea of Blut und Boden And on the hope that by uniting the people in one folk community where class distinctions play no part, but I must add that class distinctions certainly exist and, and were seen as necessarily existing, it may be possible to find a solution for the social problem in the synthesis between people and state. Unless this attempt first wins the acceptance and sanction of the people, it will be doomed to failure. The state must secure the willing cooperation of the people. This free collaboration on the part of the people, which is now an established fact and force in Germany, is a proof that the people have been approached and won in the right way. And this achievement must be placed to the credit of the National Socialist People's Welfare Organization. This organization has now more than 7 million members. These 7 millions are the sponsors of that work which shows itself 
most strikingly in the German people's winter help and in the mother-child institution. In this social service, there are nearly one and a half million voluntary workers. These workers are engaged in teaching the public in a practical way to understand that the need of the individual is an affair that concerns the community as a whole. That's a Christian principle. Whatever help is given to the individual must not be given as alms. It is the duty of the community to render assistance in cases of need, not as a work of supererogation, or in other words, the performance of more than what is asked for, the action of doing more than duty requires, but as a work that is necessary to maintain the existence of the community itself, such is the principle which inspires all the activities of the National Socialist People's Welfare Organization, and the principle, that principle is constantly kept before the public mind. Now, page 7. In the Marxist and liberalistic systems, the individual and his needs form the point of central interest. That is not so with the National Socialist welfare system. Here, the community of the people is the primary and essential object of care. The well-being of the community is a necessary precondition for the well-being of the individual. Hitler once declared, we do not say to the rich man, give to the poor, but we say, people of Germany, help yourselves. And I would add, that removing usury and speculation and ensuring that the individuals in the community had the tools to help themselves are at the core of both healthy communities and healthy individuals, which was the National Socialist Program. I'm going to make this book available as soon as I can. I can't make any promises, but it fully portrays the National Socialist Welfare Program as a program which helps communities help their individuals and pulls people out of poverty by giving them the tools they needed to work and to make their own way in life. And that's totally opposite from the Marxist system, which just flattened everything into poverty, and, and the American system, which redistributes wealth from people that earn it to people that don't, month after month after month, never doing for the people that don't so that they could do for themselves. So national socialism is not anything like American liberalism. It's not anything like Marxism. It's mostly like Christianity, like Christian community and Christian socialism should be. It's only an ignorant man who would label Adolf Hitler or the National Socialist as Marxists. Well, in that sense, then, the West really had to destroy National Socialist Germany, or else it would have existed as a shining example, a city on the hill for the rest of the world to follow. And, of course, the Anglo-American Jewish cartel couldn't have that. Which is the point I tried to make in my Christianity is Nationalism paper. That's that, that is what we should endeavor to be. And that's what all Christians, all real Christians should endeavor to be. Christianity is nationalism, and, and socialism 
cannot exist correctly and, and cannot succeed without nationalism because it should be community-based. It's people of, of one, one kindred helping one another. And, 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 and that's Christian. And, and there's, that is Christian. National socialism is a fully Christian's philosophy in every respect. And we can probably talk for two more hours. I mean, I have all kinds of quotes from Hitler on blood and race and quotes from Hitler on, on community and how the individual has to sacrifice himself for the benefit of his, of his community. And, and German communities were made up of wider groups of, of family clans, and that's Christian. And that's what Christ demands of Christians. Absolutely. Well, well, I just wanted to set the record straight on, on what national socialism was and, and how Christianity is both nationalism and Christianity should be amongst fellow believers of one's own kindred. Christianity is also socialism. No Christian identist, no identity Christian should ever despise national socialist Germany. They should look to it as one possible political model, but they should look to it as one possible ideal and, and how we could have been if Christians would only practice Christianity. And of course, we, we know that Adolf Hitler, and I said this last night, he was destined to fail, but that's fine. We could still see the ideals and that they were good, and, and, and we pray for, um, for our redemption, right? Thank you for joining me tonight. I will be here um, next Saturday, and, and we will resume, I believe, our series on the Paul Bashers, unless there are any other pressing needs. And, and I will be here next Friday for two programs. The first program at 8 o'clock, where I will begin to present Luke chapter 23. The second program at 11 p.m., and I ask you to join me, and I'm going to take callers and, and do things like that. And we're going to talk about why we will still be here in 2013, the failures of the date setters, why Christians shouldn't be date setters, why Christians shouldn't accept, should never accept and chase after and try to synthesize with their Christianity all of the world's New Age bullshit. It doesn't belong in Christianity. Zechariah Sitchin, the Mayan calendar, Jordan Maxwell – all that crap, it doesn't, it's not Christian. It doesn't belong. Any so-called Christian pastor, especially an identity Christian pastor, who is promoting any of that garbage, should be rejected by all Christians everywhere. I think you left out um, Nabooru, Blood on the Mercy Seat, and there, there's a few other sci-fi ideas out there. Absolutely, and I'll be talking about all the whack-job theories that make their way and pass themselves off as Christian identity and how they, how they discredit us and make us look like morons. And, and we can't accept them, and we can't accept the idiots that, that promote such things. When will this be? Next Friday at 11 p.m. I'll be here next right. Friday at 8 with Luke chapter 23. Next Friday at 11 what, with um, uh, uh, poking fun at all of the nuts and identity, but also um, trying to steer Christian identists away from that garbage.
Now, just in case the world's ending Friday, maybe we should do our Saturday show on Thursday to get it out of the way in time for the world to end. I think we will be here to do our Saturday show on Saturday. (laughs) All right. Thank you for joining me. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening.